All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's hands. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Tuesday, December 5th. Um, gotten to see a decent amount of you lately. We've been playing some pickleball together. we got a little bowling league going. But uh, I, sp- I suppose one of our other shared interests, college football, is uh, perhaps top of mind this Tuesday. Well, a little belated congratulations to you, uh, your beloved Texas Longhorns are making the college football playoff, but some controversy out there. Um, curious what your what your thoughts are on the the CFP committee's decisions with the with the four teams that we got. Yes, I appreciate your congratulations because I know how difficult that is for you. For people out there that don't know, I am a huge Texas Longhorns fan. I don't need to get into the the long story of why, but essentially growing up in Boston, we don't have big time college sports to root for. It's very much a pro town. And unless you go to a big time division one school, like you did Ricky at Wisconsin, which gives you like an allegiance to a school, there's you either don't have one or you pick one for whatever reason. So I've been a Texas fan for goodness, like 25 years now. <laughs> that's that's kind of crazy to say, but I, uh, yes, thrilled that Texas is back near the top of the college football landscape it was i was nervous through the whole weekend but thrilled that we're in that's the thing that matters most to me i would have put florida state in personally but that's that's the way it goes and it's not you know it's actually very relevant to the episode that we're about to have this weekend ricky because the the committee is selecting people it's not the polls like it used to be Um, and so the committee saw it a different way uh Again, I would have put Florida State in. I see the other side of things as um, as I and we tend to do. But it's, yeah, certainly one of the, uh, probably the most controversial thing that the committee's done in 10 years of the college football playoff. Yes. Yeah, so for <laughs> those who have better things to do on their Saturdays than to watch a bunch of 18-year-olds go knock each other's, <laughs> knock each other's senseless on a football field, the college college football is a very strange beast, right? It's huge, huge amounts of money. Uh, obviously, massive alumni supports from uh, from the big schools, but really like up and down um, both coasts, the middle of the country, south. Like it's one thing that it feels like you know anybody who's interested, regardless of your political allegiance, you can get behind some college football. Um, unfortunately, the NCAA is just kind of a disaster of an organization but the way that they do it is all the teams play in their respective conferences and at the end of the year a committee gets together and decides who those top four teams are those top four teams get to play in a playoff um, to decide the national champion and generally if you're in one of the major conferences what are called the power five and you finish undefeated you are a shoe in for the playoff so long as there aren't already four other undefeated teams. And this year, in all its infinite wisdom, a team that finished undefeated is being left out because of one of their players got injured, 
during the course of the season, which is, I mean, so antithetical to how we do everything else in sports around here. And, but I, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting that gets, that gets people fired up is just sports are like that one area that are, that's intended to be like, this is where fair things happen, right? Like we have a common set of rules that we live by. You play the game, the winner is the winner, the loser is the loser. And sometimes you win all the games and you still lose. And I think, I think that's tough for people to swallow. And it sort of just speaks to the, how money and other things kind of get intertwined in these things that we love so much and we think can be pure, but are sadly not. Um, Sounds very much like our political system. (laughs) Indeed. Speaking of our political system, um, what do we got for the, uh, for the people this week? Really excited this week to bring on David Paley Logos, who is the director of the Suffolk University Political Research Center. Whether or not you know of it consciously, you've heard of the Suffolk University Political Research Center. They, they do a, they're one of the preeminent polling organizations, and David is one of the preeminent pollsters in the entire nation. And at a time over the past month or so, everything in the political world has been the polls, the polls, the polls, and everything that we're going to hear in the coming months is going to be the polls, the polls, the polls. And so we feel tremendously fortunate to bring on, like I said, one of the preeminent pollsters in the whole country to tell us uh, really about the art of polling. We'll do plenty of dissecting of like the implications of what the polls are telling us, but David's going to come on and, and share with us his own personal journey into the world of polling, how he rose to become one of the top pollsters and then brought Suffolk University, the small school here in Boston, into one of like the, the top polling places in the country, and then share about how polling has changed over the course of his extended career uh, in this field and what, you know, what, what methods of polling he has, he has kind of now moved into in, in recent years and what's working, what people think of polls. So it's, it's a whole episode on polling. Really excited to bring him on and hear his thoughts about something, Ricky, you and I and so many people that are into politics spend so much time talking about the results of polls, but so little time actually thinking about like the, the nuts and bolts and behind the scenes of polling. So I think uh, David's someone that's in a unique position to be able to provide us an insight into that really little known area. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. It's one of those things that you kind of take for granted as it it like is either either you know technically sound or it makes sense or it, it's really I think accurate to a degree. Um and uh yeah, really interested in in getting a little bit of a peek behind that curtain. Sure. Before we bring David on, a quick reminder, the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, we are very much into the holiday music season at, at this point. For trees, Ricky, what radio stations do you think they're turning into these days? No idea. Well, really, any radio station that plays popular songs. <laughs> no, that's not good. 
<laughs> oh, we got we had a long holiday season full of tree puns for for you and the listeners out there, Ricky. So get excited for that and get excited for us to bring on David. All right, we are now thrilled to welcome David Paleologos onto the program. David is the director of the Suffolk University Political Research Center, the SURPC, SUPCR, SUPRC, where he has worked since 2002, conducting statewide polls and bellwether survey analyses in Massachusetts and across the country. SUPRC's cutting edge survey research has gained both national and international attention for its high degree of accuracy and SUPRC presidential primary polls have correctly predicted the outcomes of many key battleground states. Uh, SUPRC's results have been reported on by hundreds of major news organizations across television, radio, print, online. The Bellwether, Bellwether model, which was authored by David, is designed to predict outcomes, not margins of victory. And it's been used both locally and nationally, and the model has an 85% accuracy rating in predicting straight up winners. In addition to his duties as director at the Research Center, David is also a lecturer in the College of Arts and Sciences, where he teaches political survey research. A graduate of Tufts University, before beginning his career in academia, David was one of the most sought-after pollsters and field operatives. He is a frequent guest lecturer on the political surveys process and is a member of the American Association of Public Opinion Research and the Northeast Political Consultants Association. David, thank you so much for joining us. Wow. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, that's what we say about that bio, too. Again, we feel uh, very lucky that you have joined us today, and we're excited to dive into the polling process. So as I as I mentioned in your bio, you before getting into academia and directing the Suffolk University uh, Political Research Center, you were a pollster and a field operative. So can you just talk a little bit about your journey? Like, how does how did you decide that you wanted to be a pollster? Well, it, it we went back to my teen years. My my brother Nick, who was kind of a product of the '60s, you know, long sideburns, used to listen to Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and and he was a student at Tufts. He was uh, a real rabble rouser and an activist, and decided to run in Woburn, Massachusetts, for a school committee. And I was a teenager at the time, and and I I said to him, you know, we should figure out what people were thinking in, in the city. And he was like, well, we can't afford pollsters and uh, and and polling and 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 that kind of professional consulting. So I was like, I, I'll learn it. I'll learn it, and and we'll we'll try it out. And I mean, what do we have to lose? And so. I was lucky because we had a connection to John Gorman uh over and Ernie Picopoulos over at Opinion Dynamics and they were the firm that they were sort of the the um uh prodigies of of Pacadell. Pacadell was Jimmy Carter's pollster in the 1970s and he won the nomination on the Democratic side through survey research that Gorman and these guys at Opinion Dynamics were doing. And I had a personal relationship with them through our family, um, even though I, I was pretty good at stats, but uh, long and short of it was I learned it. We applied it for his local race. He won. Then his liberal views did him no good because he got kicked out two years later. 
advocating back in the 70s for uh, teacher merit pay and METGO. And of course, nobody in Ruben wanted METGO to come to this suburban city. So he went down in flames. And then he decided to run for state representative against an incumbent state rep, a very popular family, the Joyce family, Danny Joyce. Uh, whose dad had de- was a doctor and delivered many of the babies in Woburn. So I was, I was like, I'm just like beating my head against the wall. I'll I'll help you, my brother, but you know it's not looking pretty. It's not looking good. So we did some survey research, and he won. He 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 beat him. It was a three way fight, and uh, then his his colleagues in the state house said, "How the hell did you get up here? You weren't supposed to beat Danny Joyce." And he was like, well, I did this polling thing at the local level. My brother spearheaded it. And you should call him. And so they started calling me for their races. So I'm doing races now, not just in Woburn, but I'm doing Burlington and Andover and, you know, Acton and all of these other cities. And that's how I started. That's how I got I got kind of drawn into it through brotherly love as in, you know, I mean, I was the youngest of three. He was my older brother. Everyone looked up to him and not only in our family, but in the town. And and that's how I got started. And then uh, the rest is history. I mean, that's an even cooler story than I could have hoped for. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if you sort of recall uh, going back to the early days, but what were some of the insights that you were able to pull from the polling that that you think helped contribute to to some of those wins well first off was the logistics now it's easy to poll anyone can poll if they know the bell curve random selection some 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 basic uh and important uh, mathematical principles back then there were no electronic files it was the 70s so if you wanted to random select voters, you had to go to City Hall, get a big paper list that was like 22 by 17, big, big, long, wide sheets of voters. Then you had to manually put on the phone number. So someone else had to look up every single name, put the phone number in ink for all of the precincts and the wards. And then we would do every nth number so that we would randomly select. So we would go through, we would count up all the numbers, divide by the targets in each ward and precinct. And then we would highlight as a starting point, those highlights were our starting points. So it was very tedious. It took forever. And then of course, we ha- you had to train people who were you know, more on the political hack side who were on campaigns for various reasons and they didn't understand what we were doing really. Um, and so we had to do training and, well, you know, you can't you can't call the next number down after a complete, you have to jump to the next skipped highlighted number. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was quite challenging. Um, and so logistically, it was difficult. The principles were the same though. Principles were, uh, you know, random selection, uh, create creating a, a a questionnaire that was not biased in any way, that wasn't leading the respondent to make sure that you weren't asking questions that followed 
a series, a battery of questions that would take a person to have a negative thought on the economy or another issue and then ask them a subsequent issue on the economy or abortion, whatever it is. So those principles were the same, but the logistics were were a nightmare. And it wasn't until the 80s, really, that pollsters came of age, because in the old days, it was just Gallup and, and Pew. Gallup and Pew were the, the, you know, we all looked to them. And uh, so when we came along and when when I brought polling to Suffolk, uh, you know, it was part of this practical experience. John Berg and Agnes Bain were the were the key people at the time in the department, and they were shifting from a theoretical based um, platform at Suffolk to more people who were practitioners who did this for for a living. And I was recruited to uh, teach this course, um, which I did. And uh, I'd done some local TV and I met Greg Payne from Emerson. Uh, he was on the same panel as I was. And after the show, he said, you, are you committed only to Suffolk? And I said, no, it's just a you know, an adjunct appointment. And he was like, well, you're going to teach it at Emerson too. So I started teaching at both places and with the hopes that one of them uh, would develop a research center. And it didn't happen for a long, long time. And I almost, I almost left Suffolk um, before we got off the ground. It was just pure luck that I stayed and that we, we developed a program at Suffolk University. So speaking of that program, for our listeners out there, many might be familiar with Suffolk and it's an excellent university here in Boston, but it's it's a small university, relatively speaking. And over the course of the now 20 plus years that we've had, the Suffolk's had this uh, political research center, how have you gone about turning it into one of like the preeminent polling organizations in the country? So a couple of ways. Um, number one, when you have a good accuracy year, you've got to try extra hard the second, the next cycle, because the way it works is when you have a great cycle, the following cycle, you usually bomb. So the key is to double down hard to stay accurate. So, and what will happen is more and more attention gets to you, the more people realize how accurate you are, which is why we started, you know, we weren't even able to get into the Worcester local paper when we started because nobody really focused on it. They didn't know what was Suffolk doing polling for. That's not, everybody thought of Suffolk as the law school. That was the the brand. And, but over time, as you show accuracy, then you get the Herald and the Globe, and now we're in the New York Times and the Washington Post. We poll with the LA Times too, so we we've we've so accuracy is the short answer. To, is the first part of, of it, and second is being willing to take chances on what we poll. So most people just poll states or national politics. We've done different topics that have gotten a lot of attention. 
that no one else is is doing. We've done these city view polls. You know, you, when you think of inner cities, they're not polled. They're only polled as part of a, a statewide survey. And so a big city like Boston or Philadelphia or LA only gets a small piece of those people surveyed in the state. And we thought, you know, there's so many federal dollars, there's so much attention going on in these inner cities in terms of especially over the last 10 years with racial issues and policing and uh, homelessness and so on, we decided to start what we call city view polling. And the city view polls were done initially on policing and race, but have branched out to so many other topics. We've also um, debuted a, a, a model that I wrote called the Bellwether model, which you talked about in the intro. Um, Suffolk's been very supportive of me putting that model out there because no one else does it. So it becomes unique, a unique um, piece of a unique tool of what we offer at Suffolk. We also poll foreign elections. We poll the election in France a couple cycles back, uh, which no other colleges and universities have dipped their, their toe in. And then, you know, there are other, we, we have the liberty of doing other polling, like when the Russia-Ukraine war broke out, I was devastated to hear that Russian tea houses in New York were being vandalized by people. And I, I couldn't believe that, I, you know, like we're all Americans, Russian-American, Ukrainian-American. So we, we did a survey of Russian-Americans and Ukrainian-Americans, both of whom um, spoke highly and supported Ukraine, including the Russians, and were giving thumbs down to Putin. After that poll came out, there was there, there were no other incidents. I don't think there was a direct correlation, but I think having the ability to open up and be a little bit creative about what you poll is important as well. We've also done issues on sexual harassment. We did one for the Salt Lake Tribune in Utah, and you'd think, well, you know, a lot of Mormon families, they probably don't have sexual discrimination, sexual harassment. It's absolutely not true. There's so much, we heard so many stories in our polling that it became a, a national issue. So bringing to light different issues, doing going in a different direction, ex, you know, aside from are you going to vote for Biden or Trump or, or whatever, which everybody else does, um, I think sets Suffolk University apart. And then, of course, as I say, you know, we're coming off a really good cycle. We, according to 538.com, we were tied with the New York Times and Siena for the lowest uh, average error rate, which was terrific. And in the last five elections, according to Real Clear Politics, Suffolk is the most accurate in the last five, uh, last 10 years. So the pressure's on us. We have a target on our back. I'm sure from other pollsters. So we, the odds say we we're gonna miss in 2024. But if we don't, if we have a, if we can repeat, it will be the first time it's ever happened. Well, 538 is actually where it kind of triggered my. It's one of my favorite websites, and it, when I saw that at the very top, I was like, 
oh damn like we should <laughs> this is like this is right in our backyard we should be reaching out and trying to talk to them but so that a lot of fascinating points about how you have turned Suffolk into one of the as you just said objectively best pollsters polling organizations in the country but you started with accuracy and I think that's probably the foundational thing you don't get to do all of those other things if you're not accurate so can you talk about like what has made your polling accurate is it the bellwether model is it other things yeah so the bellwether model is like a sister test you know we always say if you have a symptom and you go to the doctor and they they prescribe something you're gonna see one set of results if you don't uh go to anybody else but if you got a second opinion you're going to get more information. And that's what the bellwethers are. The bellwethers are assisted tests. So if we are polling Nevada, for example, Nevada is a poll that we do with maybe, I don't know, there's like six or seven other polling outfits in the country that do Nevada well and successfully. But we also poll Washoe County, which is a little county on the very, very, western it's a it's like a, a a sliver on the western side of nevada washoe county has been very close to predicting winners not all the time but a lot of the times so if washoe is vastly different than our statewide numbers or vice versa something's off now ironically we found the bellwethers to be statistically even more accurate than the statewide polling and there and there might be multiple reasons for that but yeah i mean the 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 bellwether is part of it is part of the accuracy the other part is that we build up our our sample our demographics from the ground up and we do it using geographic blocks not everybody does it this way so for example in massachusetts for those people who live in massachusetts we divide the state into four regions. And within those regions, we make sure that the demographics that we contain are reflective of what the likely voter turnout is going to be. So it's going to be different from one to the other. For example, if you just look at Suffolk County on its own, which is about 8% of the general election uh, numbers and about 10% of the Democratic primary numbers, those demographics are vastly different than Southeastern Mass and the Cape. So we start with the geographic building blocks, and then within those building blocks, we make sure that the quotas are right for education and gender and um, you know political party affiliation and age and, and others. So it's work for us. Everybody has different methodologies. And, and and we're all different. You know, we do live caller at Suffolk. In my business, I do live caller and we do other platforms. Um, some pollsters don't have the budget to do live caller. They're very expensive to do. So they do online only, online panels. Some do IVR, which is uh, interactive voice recording, which is like robo polling. Uh, some do texting, uh, SMS polling. So we all do it differently, which is why there is value to, you mentioned 538, there is value to 538.com because they rate us on their uh, on the 
the statistical indices that they think are important objectively. And then you have a basket of polls that are all done differently, targeting the same electorate. So when you look at the average, you're getting a very powerful number. Doesn't mean it's right. You know, there have been times when Suffolk has been different and right, which is weird. Usually you're an outlier if you're different and you're wrong. But we've had numerous, um, I don't know if it's just luck or whatever, but, you know, numerous times where the Suffolk poll has shown one thing, the polling community over every place else has shown the other thing, and the polling community has been wrong. It hasn't happened a lot. It did happen in 2008 in New Hampshire in the Democratic primary where every other pollster had a Barack Obama winning in a landslide. And we had two bellwethers showing Hillary Clinton beating Barack Obama, which she did win. Um, you know, that kind of launched us into the national spotlight after that poll. Um, we also had Scott Brown uh, beating uh, Martha Coakley, one of the one of the first, if not the first uh, live caller survey. And then all subsequent polling that came out after we released Brown up by three or four um they all had brown winning as well they were they were picking it up after we we picked it up so um you know there are times you're wrong too you know um and we've been wrong also you know in massachusetts in our home state uh sometimes we've been wrong so you know no one's perfect and we all do the best we can to get it right so you brought up something that I was really curious about is your method of, of, and you said it's live calling. And Pew came out with this study, I believe earlier this year, that said that live polling is way down over the past few decades, which was, I don't think is really a surprise to anybody. And that only maybe 10% of polls use live calling as like their main source of polling. How have you found that live polling has changed over these last couple of decades? Because obviously you started you said 50 years ago when like almost everyone had a home phone, that was it. But I would say nowadays it's, it's largely older people that have like home phones and, and I don't know that everyone's picking up cell phones. So I'm super curious, like how that has affected your practice in the last few decades. So the success of the life uh, calling has happened because we, we, we Suffolk was ahead of the curve in terms of the proportion of cell phone to landline. So when we started out, cell phones were the minority. When you go back to the 80s, more landlines were called than cell phones. Uh, cell phone plans were really expensive. The the you know co coverage wasn't that great. People wasn't being used widely. Um, and as it changed, we aggressively changed our proportion. So that we're at like 90 to 10, 90% cell phone and 10% landline. You do need landlines because there are some areas of the country and the state for that matter that have awful cell service. And sometimes we'll initiate a call on a cell phone. The respondent will say, "Could I, I'll do the survey, but can you call me back on my landline? for cost reasons or what are privacy or whatever reasons. And we'll do that. And that will be recorded as a landline complete, even though the call was initiated by, by cell phone. So um, um, 
I guess it's anticipating what the what the changes uh, will be, and we were picking up um, how how fast that trajectory was happening with cell phones, and we knew that if we we were going at a more moderate pace with cell phones, we were going to be a lagger, and we didn't want to do that. So. You know, if people wanted to challenge us because we were interviewing 5% more cell phone respondents than there were in terms of cell phone um, uh, uh, usage, we, by the time we were haggling over the argument, the cell phone usage would have caught up. It was growing that fast. So it was a bit of a risk, you know, um, by, by overemphasizing cell phones as we were progressing through the years. It sounds like you've had to continually like evolve the polling process to get more accurate, you know, since since you started and that tracks with, with you know, technological advancement and, and so many other things. I think the the first Trump election in 2016 was a was one where there was a lot of sort of media coverage of the polls getting it wrong. I wonder a kind of do you think that that was a fair assessment of how the polls did and then secondly what if any sort of major changes you may have instituted in or sort of advocated for in response to what happened during the 2016 election with regard to polling yeah so the 2016 election is very interesting hillary clinton won the popular vote the polling community had hillary clinton winning the popular vote uh, maybe not exactly by the margin. She won by two percentage points over Donald Trump, but she won. So people who say the pollsters had Hillary Clinton winning and Donald Trump won, is that's only half right. We had Hillary Clinton winning and she won the popular vote. And when the, for those of us who took the you know national surveys, that's what the outcome was. Now, in the in the blue wall states in 2016, that's where the problem happened. And quite frankly, the top pollsters didn't poll the blue wall states. We were polling the states we thought were important from history. We were polling Nevada, Florida. We were polling North Carolina and Virginia. We were polling Ohio. We were polling the states, New Hampshire. We were polling states that we thought mattered. Very few of them. We didn't poll the Blue Wall states. Monmouth didn't. Marist didn't. Quinnipiac didn't. Or one of them may have polled once, and, and that was it. So what you had in 2016 was Nate Silver and Charlie Cook and you know uh larry sabato and the people all year long were promising that they were going to predict the electoral college and what happened none of us were giving them the information they really needed to make a good call so they were relying on polls that were local polls not really tested not highly rated and making their best guess based on that data so and it wasn't like we all got together and colluded. We don't talk to each other, really. So it just so happened that's what happened. You know, that's what happened. Now, if that had been picked up, 
would the rate would things have changed probably not it probably would have been too late for for that wave to happen but what people didn't talk about in 2016 was that jill stein's total votes in those three blue wall states far exceeded what hillary clinton lost by so i could argue that ballot placement in 2016 if you remove jill stein from the three blue wall states where are those Green Party voters going to go? To Donald Trump? They could, but I, I highly unlikely. There's a lot of interchangeability. So what really didn't get discussed was how Jill Stein's presence on those three ballots siphoned off votes away from Hillary Clinton and gave Donald Trump an electoral college win even though we lost the popular vote. So building off Ricky's question, though, the, definitely the narrative coming out of 2016 was that the polls got it wrong. And there was a lot of, particularly on the right, being like, you can't trust these polls. It's just another tool of this liberal media that doesn't really take into consideration conservative voters out there, rural folks out there. So is there anything that you, you can do as a pollster to try to combat that narrative? So APOR put out a proviso that basically said, you know, you sh everybody should be factoring in education level. Trump voters were not educated and Hillary Clinton uh, were educated. And we want the polling community to reflect the correct proportions on education. So everybody, you know, listened and, and adjusted and made sure that those were part of either weighting or quotas or SAMP uh, or, uh, 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 you know, how we were approaching our sampling models. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Um, and I think the reason is because the polling community and even the lay community that looks at us, they don't, they, they, they're silver, they're, they're, they're silver bullet seekers. They're always they always want to find out what one thing went wrong. And it wasn't education. I mean, 2016 was one of those years in the last 10 for us. So we, you know, we were answering for other pollsters who missed worse than we did. Um, but because we didn't poll the blue wall states, we, you know, we dodged that bullet. You know, the states that we did poll, we 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 got right. But Oftentimes, the people who were wrong don't want to talk to the press after the election for whatever reason, out of embarrassment or whatever. And then the people who do talk to the press end up making best explanations as we can, even though we're answering for someone else's work. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're always looking to retool and we do it like gender. We never used to ask gender. And we, Suffolk was one of the, for again, we were one of the first to be out front on that, to actually ask gender preference, male, female, non-binary, and then to go into the categories of non-binary. Um, some posters still don't do it. Some, some, some don't include that. Um, and there are other things that we, we ask and adjust for wherever possible. 
um, uh, on race. You know, a lot of pollsters never asked two or more races. And I, you know, looked at the trends. I mean, I did some consulting work for the census, so I had a little bit of inside info. And I saw how fast two or more races is, is jumping up from decennial census to decennial. And we wanted to make sure that we were in front of that. So that it wasn't just white, black, Hispanic, Asian, American, Indian, Pacific Islander. It was two or more races as an option as well. So a lot of this is inside pointy head stuff and it's in its um, minutia to maybe a lot of listeners. But these things do matter. These 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 adjustments, you know, these adjustments do matter. But in terms of the argument that people don't take polls and they don't answer their phone, that is true. Less people, it takes more call attempts to get a complete. But once you get the complete, you've filled the quota. And if you refuse, if you hang up on us, we're going to continue to call and we'll find somebody who will take the, the survey who matches your demographics, whatever those are. So it takes us more attempts, but we're not missing or undercounting significant demographics. And that's the key. We want the poll to include all of the correct proportions of demographics as best we can um, in terms of that likely voter electorate pool. Yeah, I um, don't know if you have to go. If we have time for one more. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to know kind of what your advice is for um, the lay person. As we get into the election year, we're going to start to see a, a bunch of different information about candidates and polls, about issues and polls. Like when you see those results, how do you interpret them? And yeah, what would you think sort of if, if you're going to give the grain of salt that people should take with these polls? Like, what are you what are you saying? Yeah, so I have a couple of thoughts about that. Um, number one, don't rely on any one pollster, including Suffolk, I will say. Um, rely on a basket of, of good polls, a basket of good polls. Hopefully Suffolk will be in that basket. It's like buying a mutual fund, a mutual fund that holds the best, the top 10 you know, companies in that portfolio and you have a reasonable chance to do well in your life with that mutual fund because of the expertise of those top 10 on your list. And so maybe there's 10, maybe there's six, I don't know, but use a basket of polls and polling averages, number one. And secondly, I will say that watch out for third party candidates in 2024 Third-party candidates are going to have a bigger impact than they did in 2016 when Hillary Clinton lost the margins to Jill Stein, and in 2020 where Donald Trump lost his margins to the libertarian candidates who got four or five times as many votes as he lost by in 2020 uh, in Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia. In 2024, you've got Cornell West, who's an announced candidate for president as an independent, who's drawing African-American voters away from Biden. You've got Jill Stein, who's drawing uh, green voters away from Biden. 
you're going to have a libertarian candidate like in 2020 that basically beat Donald Trump, drawing votes away from Donald Trump because libertarians and Republicans, there's a lot of interchangeability there. And then you're going to have the no labels. You know, no labels is, uh, you know, a party that's going to put a, a Democrat or Republican interchangeable. Finally, you've got RFK, who's running as an independent. Now, when you go back and look at what independents have done, everybody says you're a loser if you vote for an independent. They don't matter. They can never win electoral votes. They don't count. John Anderson got 7% of the vote in 1980. Um, in that year, it didn't really matter because Ronald Reagan won on a landslide. But in 1992, Ross Perot as an independent got 19% and enabled Bill Clinton, who won the presidency with 43% of the vote and won numerous red states like West Virginia and Louisiana and Kentucky. And that election taught us that independents do matter, that they can change an outcome. And you fast forward to, you know, the butterfly ballot and the election in, in, in 2000 in Florida, where, you know, George Bush Jr., young Bush, W. Bush, wins Florida by 537 votes and 90,000 people voted for Ralph Nader in Florida as a Green Party candidate. Otherwise, you'd have President Gore. Third party candidates mattered then. And that, and as I say, third party candidates hurt Hillary in 2016. Libertarians hurt Trump in 2020. But now you've got everybody running as a third party candidate. So circling back to your original question, why is all this talk about third party candidates important? It's important if the pollsters you're looking at are not including the choices on those state ballots. It's not just Trump, Biden, or other. It's not just Trump, Biden, or no labels, an unnamed no labels. It's not just Trump, Biden, and a moderate independent. You have to replicate exactly what the choices on the state ballot are, because that will have a direct impact on the outcome. And those posters are the ones you really want to keep an eye on. Nevada comes to mind. If you go to vote in Nevada, Nevada has this, and, you, and, and as a poster, we have to learn all of, the, all of the rules of getting on the ballot, which is a mind-boggling. That's a job in itself. But in Nevada, if you go to the polls in, the, in 2020, if you went to the polls in 2020, there were four candidates for president on the Nevada ballot. But there were five ballot options, four candidates, and a fifth ballot option, which is none of these candidates. None of these candidates is an actual choice that you can make on, make on the Nevada ballot. And in 2020, 14,000 people in Nevada for president selected none of these candidates. 14 thousand people now think about that you get up you live in reno you drive to the poll you look at your ballot 
There's four choices. It's not just Joe Biden and Donald Trump. There's two other choices on the printed ballot. And you say, no, I'm not going to vote for them. I'm not going to vote. I'm not even going to vote for third party. I'm going to select none of these candidates. Part of the reason I think we've had some success in Nevada is that we are adamant about including that ballot option when we poll Nevada, because if we don't, that's a segment of the electorate that we've where we that we're determining doesn't matter, and it does matter. It does matter, you know. Um, and, and, you know the other piece that I'll say in closing is that you've got two states that have ranked choice voting in 2024, Maine and now Alaska. There is a scenario if RFK stays strong where RFK could finish second in Maine and win the electoral votes in Maine. There is a case to be made that if RFK finished second in Alaska, he could win the electoral votes in the second or subsequent rounds. So knowing the rules in each state and on the state ballots are important. It takes a ton of work. It's expensive. Um, we take it very seriously. We know others in our industry take it seriously. Obviously, there are some that you know give us a bad name if they don't cross the T's and dot the I's. And, and there's always the chance that even we can be wrong. We can be that one poll that's out, an outlier that's outside the margin of error and is just off. And that's part of the bell curve. That's part of the world we live in. Um, but I think if your viewers and your lay people are are uh, listening, have made it this far in the podcast, they they should look for the pollsters who are really exactly replicating what the state ballot composition is. Well, that's a phenomenal answer, and I think exactly what we were looking for. Thank you, David, so much for joining us. I think you've given us a great insight into like the actual practice of polling, but also in terms of like how to interpret polling. You're such a like wealth of knowledge about these specific races and details. It's for like history and political junkies like Ricky and myself. This has been so fun to listen to. You, I'm sure you've seen us just like laughing and nodding along here. It's been awesome. Uh, so for people that do that are interested in learning more about you or about uh, the, the polling organization at Suffolk, where might they be able to find your work? Okay, great. So it's Suffolk, S-U-F-F-O-L-K dot E-D-U forward slash S-U-P-R-C, which is an acronym for Suffolk University Political Research Center. And on that webpage, um, you'll see you know, our, our summary, our latest polls, um, and the 538 rankings and the Real Clip Politics rankings, uh, if you scroll down a bit. And um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and I'm so proud of you guys. And I'm so glad that you're, you're carrying the Suffolk Ram banner um, where you are and happy to uh, do this at, at any point going forward. Well, we always say, be careful well, what you what you offer us, because we will take you up on that. But we, I'm so excited because I, I always think it's fun when I see like the Suffolk University poll in the news, when I read Politico or the Washington Post, or oh, Suffolk University just came out with this poll. And even before I knew, like when I was just getting into this stuff, I was like, oh, Suffolk University, but there are suffix all over the place. I didn't even know that it was like right down the street in Boston that was that were doing these like unbelievable national, international polls. It's so cool to see. Uh, when, so, 
Yeah, when John Stewart was uh, was a, a, a popular talking head, and he was going over the pulp. There's there's a you can find it on YouTube, but he 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 was talking to I think John Zogby at the time, um, and making fun of the people who had got New Hampshire wrong in two thousand and eight. And they put the you know the Suffolk University numbers, and he went, "Oh, Suffolk University, you gotta like those Long Island pollsters." Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> John, John, no, you know, nobody knew that we're yeah. Massachusetts. They thought we we're at Suffolk County in, in yeah. New Jersey or New York, whatever. Um, so yeah, we it's it's been a long slog for uh, for us, but. The only thing, you know, you, you always learn in life, the only thing you can control is what you can control. And and uh, I I rely very little on marketing, professional marketing. I just put my nose down and put my head down and focus on accuracy. And I take it I take it to heart when we're wrong. A lot of pollsters, they shrug their shoulders. Oh, well, we were outside the margin of error. But, you know, it great. I'm. To it, I'm too close to this. It grades on me. I beat myself up if I'm wrong on a race, and uh, um, you know, and uh, and the my students uh, who have taken my class at Suffolk really have made me proud. You know, we've we've brought them into the research arena in the in the profession. I've hired some. Some have worked at the research center, and they've done some amazing work. And so. Um, uh, I can't say enough about the students at uh, at, at at the university. Uh, super credit to you and all of their hard work over the past few decades. Again, we greatly appreciate your the generosity with your time today, and we look forward. It sounds like you have a very exciting and very pressure packed year ahead of you. So we're excited to see how it goes. <laughs> yes, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, David. We appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. Take care. Good luck, guys. Thank you. Nice to meet you all. Well, Ricky, it feels like so frequently we have these guests on and I'm like hopeful for what they're going to bring. And then they like over deliver and it was even better than I hoped it was going to be. And certainly I hope that the listeners out there were also really interested in it. But like I said to David at the end, you and I, I just felt like we're, we're laughing at some of these references and nodding along and he's picking out these particular candidates from 92 and 1980 and these awesome, like these races and these states. And I was like, ah, just for, for people that are into this stuff, I, I hope you enjoyed it as, as much as as I did. Ricky, what were any any particular takeaways from the conversation? Um, I, yeah, it was, it was certainly a fascinating one. I I think a you you really get a sense for just the the rigor and sort of the scientific nature that goes into the high quality polls like like Suffolk and others. Quinnipiac comes to mind and. The, I think, but, you know, getting to talk to someone who is in the weeds of this, you also understand that there are passionate individuals who strive to make this, you know, they're not just um, going about their day to day. It's something that's important to them. And um, I think that that is, uh, I think, we're, you know, we're sort of really lucky to get some of these insights because, especially for sort of political candidates to get to really understand what the electorate cares about, what direction they're going in, where they need to focus their time, because so much of it is time and resources as you're heading into an election, um, that that these polls can be, you know, 
meaningfully impactful. Um, and then of course, sort of the, the parting thoughts that he left us with, like we, I think right after the election, spent so much time talking about the electoral college, but I haven't really heard about it, you know, once in the last six months. And I don't remember hearing about it that much in the lead ups to the elections, but how much third party candidates matter, how much ballot options matter when I didn't even know in Nevada you could you could select none of the above because I imagine that would be a popular selection in a, in a lot of in a lot of states and then yeah the advent the introduction of ranked choice in two states and how that's going to play out like beyond how people perceive the two leading candidates there's so much that can really change the tide of an election that you have to keep in mind um, in both sort of trying to predict the results, but also like in, in in interpreting the results as well. I think like what he said about going back to, for us at least, Nader in Florida, but you know, you can look at Jorgensen in Georgia and Arizona in the last one, certainly can look at Jill Stein um, when, when it was Hillary Clinton and Trump in the first one. So I think, I think that, yeah, just, just gives you a lot to think about and reminds you that you have a lot to keep in mind that none of these things really happen in a vacuum. Yeah. Three thoughts from me. One is just like the level of detail that someone like David in Suffolk is doing. And we know like those other top pollsters are doing as well, but I think sometimes it's easy to dismiss like polls as, oh, it's just kind of general, like almost like they're guessing at that or like, predicting things and it's like when you actually listen to like the amount of work that goes into it and the amount of like really like granular thinking and building that they're doing of these models you're like oh it's th these top pollsters are, are really doing excellent work so that was one two I thought your his answer to your question about the post-2016 election was excellent because even seven years later Ricky I still think that narrative exists of like the polls were wrong like they they just were they completely got this wrong and they were wrong for all of these reasons like I tried to get at with him because of all like the liberal biases in these polls and we're not actually talking to real voters on the ground and I thought his answer was excellent like we weren't polling because we didn't think that Michigan and Wisconsin were even in place so we weren't actually polling those places and like of course that's probably a mistake but that everyone will learn from, but also that Hillary Clinton like did win the popular vote. And that's kind of what we were predicting. And uh, that just that like we, maybe they didn't get it as wrong as, as we, we thought they did. I thought that was kind of a, a nice job that he did defending polls, but also being like, yeah, we did have this blind spot in terms of not polling these areas that we want to adjust. So I, I, I really appreciated that full answer because I don't think I had heard something like that over the last seven years. And then finally, what you were just saying about going forward is I feel like so often we read the headlines of like, new poll comes out, Donald Trump at 50%, Joe Biden at 39%. And then every all the Democrats freak out and all the Republicans are CEO. Like, this is exactly what I talk, we're talking about. And what he's saying is, well, maybe you should look at who's doing the poll. Maybe you should look at, was it just the, the two candidates or was there a generic third party candidate or were we listing four different third party candidates? And so it's just like, it encourages you, and this is true with almost everything, to read beyond the headline and just try to understand more about what it's coming from. But I think polls are so easy because you see those numbers and everyone freaks out and it spawns these things on like social media and on traditional media of like all these think pieces about why this is happening. And it's like, I think he was almost saying just like, 
like pump the brakes a little bit and really try to look into the polls themselves, look into all what all of the polls are saying collectively. Like we don't need to freak out every time we see one of these polls in the next few months here. And I think that's a good reminder for everyone out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to, to that point of like taking a peek at what is the, what's the methodology? What are they trying to answer? I thought it was an interesting disclaimer that, you know, the Suffolk polls aren't looking at the margin of victory they're just trying to say they're they're just trying to pick winners based on all of the things that they know about how the you know how, how what the ballot is going to look like how rank choice is going to work etc et i think that is is really interesting and then yeah following the 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 margin of error which for a lot of these you know the winner and loser may end up being within that margin of error so keeping that in mind as you try and parse through what the polls are saying about where people are leaning heading into election day. Yeah, just overall, I thought it was really exactly what we were looking for. Like I said, in the open there, like all I feel like I've heard in these last few months and all I'm going to hear in these next few months are the polls, the polls, the polls. And this was a really great insight into how these polls are working, what we should be paying attention to. And yeah, I think I'm where this will be one. I feel like doing this at the end of 23 is perfect because it's setting us up into 2024 when the polls and this race, all these races are going to dominate the news cycle. Hopefully for you and I, and for all our listeners out there, we have a better understanding of how, how they work and what to look for. So uh, hugely appreciative to David of his time and his expertise. That was, <laughs> I had a lot of fun in that conversation. Yeah. Good stuff as always. All right, man. I'll catch you next time. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's hands. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share. Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share loud American ideals. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope 
behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find And change the lines and folks with different minds Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find And change the lines and Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz